you very much, men. That was it's nice when you have music like that that you follow when you're proclaiming God's word. If you could join me and turn to the book of James where we'll be today. For anyone who is an alumni of a certain school, it's a joy when you get the opportunity to speak like this. Uh, before moving here for this position I have, I've only been on this platform for in two formal opportunities. One was my graduation. Can't forget that. I remember grabbing my degree, sitting down about the third or fourth row right there. The student in front of me, my dear friend Jesse Loggins, sat down, and he opens his diploma, and he looks. He's like, he shows me, it says, go to the business office. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, poor guy. I open mine up, and it says, Jesse Loggins. <laughs> so we switched. <laughs> he had mine, and I had his, so I had to go to the business office. The other time is, I don't want to say it was a prouder moment for me, was the student body talent show night as seniors. And we didn't have anything, and last minute I came up with a genius idea. So if you walk into the old main, you see those box fans right there at the entrance. My talent, that is impressive, is we turned it on high, and I stopped it with my tongue. The reattachment surgery went well. Um, if you ever try to do it, piece of advice, make sure you dust the blades first. That was a hard lesson learned. So those are my two shining moments up here. Um, those don't even come close to, to the honor of being able to share God's word with you. And at the risk of being that old alumni guy and reminiscing and in the process tuning you out, I've been in those shoes, your shoes, I want to share a memory with you I had here in this gym. It was my first ever college opening service, services or meetings. And on the last night after the service, they had two mics up on either side for students to come and give testimony about what God has done for them during that week of meetings. At that time, I had been a Christian for about 10 months. Grew up in a Christian home. I knew all the verses. I knew all the Bible stories. But my whole life was one of manipulating the gospel for my gain and for my benefit. If I was in trouble, oh, I need to be saved. Oh, that's the problem with Timmy. He needs, he needs to get saved. And I had learned to twist and manipulate the gospel. But it wasn't until my senior year in high school where I was confronted with my sin but I remember the students would come up, give testimony, and almost every time they would share their life verse. And I'm like, I don't have one. How can I be a serious Christian and not have a life verse? i got to come up with one. So I started thinking, okay, what about this verse? And then a student would say that verse. Oh, I can't have that one. And then what about this one? Oh, someone had that one. And then, of course, there is the quota on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 was definitely taken up in life verses. And I'm like, I never had a life verse. Until later in life, in James chapter 4, where we are today, I was an assistant pastor in California, struggling as a bivocational pastor, um, being torn between secular work life and ministry, 
being confronted with a very secular world that I lived in, particularly in the Defense Department of the United States. And a dear friend put this verse in front of me, James 4.8, one of the greatest promises we can find in the Bible, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And over time, I can tell you, a life verse expanded to what we're going to look at today, verses 6 through 10. But in reality, my life verses change as circumstances of life hit you. In this last year or so, my life has been in the book of Psalms, in the book of Lamentations, learning and understanding what lament is. And that's just the reality of Christian life. We have God's word, and every time we need God's word, we need God to draw near to us. He puts truth in front of us. And let me just say today, you do not need a life verse to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ. You need to love God and love his word and love his truth. But as we turn here to James chapter 4 and verse 6, There are many views of how to understand these verses. Some believe James is addressing unbelievers, and others say, no, he's talking to believers. My view? Yes. But if you push me in a corner, I would ultimately say, James is probably talking to to believers. Remember in chapter 1, his church is scattered because of persecution, and he's writing to them as word is getting back about behaviors. This text is about these behaviors, and it brings into question what James does here. He brings into question your friendships, your relationships you have. Either you are a friend of the world, that verse 4 tells us in chapter 4, or you are a friend of God. Make no mistake, this is an either-or statement. There's no walking the fence, walking down the middle of the road. Friends with the world or friends with God, are exclusive of each other. You cannot have a little bit of both. This is such a serious situation for James that he makes it simple by quoting Proverbs 3 in verse 34. Look with me at verse 6 where he gives this quote. It would help if I turn there as well. Verse 6, he says, But he giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, here's the quote, God resisteth the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. God resisteth the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. The word resisteth has this idea of oppose, to be hostile towards, to rage in battle against. God is at war against you and your pride. This is what James is letting his church know as they're scattered. God is at war with your pride. God has no room for your pride. But the beauty of this quote, James just doesn't leave us there. He reminds that even while living in this world, the God who is the great giver gives the gift of grace that is truly worth having to help us to pursue humility, to live a life of humility. And once again, James, as we had, if we had time to look at the whole book, portrays God as the great giver that he is, the good giver. He gives more grace. Instead of wanting the things of the world, we should remember 
that he gives us the best. And what we'll see here today, as James gives, gives us a clear picture of this humility that we are to have towards God, that will ultimately point us to friendship with God. James just doesn't tell us, hey, stop being a friend of the world. That makes you an enemy of God. But let me show you what friendship with God ultimately looks like. In the next verses, 7 through 10, there are several commands that James lays out. Obey these commands. Follow this. And you are a friend of God. You will portray friendship of belonging to God. And God will be your friend in return. Christians should humbly submit to God in response to his friendship. So the question we want to answer today is a simple one. Write it down. Do I have friendship with God? Do I have friendship with God? Does your life reflect a life that has friendship with God? And as we get into these verses today, we'll see a description of this friendship that God has in the form of these commands. And I want, to think, I want you to think about these verses in the context of bookends. You know what bookends are? They hold up books from falling over. You ever put books on a bookshelf and you're trying to get them up there faster before then they fall over and that doesn't always happen? You have the domino effect? But understand verses 7 through 10 is bookends. Verse 7 is the, the first bookend. Verse 10 is the other bookend. And right in the middle is the meat that's holding everything. And the bookends are holding verses 8 and 9 in place. But that first bookend that we see in verse 7 is submission and resistance. Look at these commands in verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It seems pretty straightforward, right? Those commands, submit and resist. Those are easy to carry out, right? Submit to God and resist the devil. How can that be hard? We know in reality, as we live in this broken world, it's not easy. We find here the remedy for friendship with the world is a submission to God. A willingness to submit to, the, to authority, shows one's humility as genuine. The verb here being used for submit is, is be understood as volunteering myself, an act of placing myself willingly under another, making myself subject, in this case, to my creator. I know that submit today in our culture is a loaded term. In fact, it's frowned upon. To submit means to give up my rights. My rights, I can do whatever I want. As a child, I remember all the time, it's a free country. I can, I can say what I want. I can do what I want. And my parents would always give corrective actions to my statements as a child. But please understand the word submission is a beautiful one. It is one that brings security and comfort and peace, as James points out later. It is the picture of ordering our lives under God's authority and will. This is a command to obey. This is not an option. I think I'm going to submit. One of the greatest ways to show that you belong to God and you are a child of God is to submit to his authority and his will. 
But then we see this second command is one of contrast. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. James gives us this contrast, and it's an understandable one. If you're going to submit to God, then by that action, you will also be resisting the devil. You can't do both. If you're submitting, you're automatically resisting. And if you're, if you're not resisting, you're automatically not submitting. James puts his readers here in an either-or position. But there's two principles here to remember. What James is not doing, he does not indicate that if you resist the devil, then our lives will be smooth sailing. He's not implying that. You know, the devil, you may resist him, and the devil may tuck tail and run, but it doesn't mean he's going to leave you alone for the rest of your life. You just won the battle. The second principle to understand is James is not issuing a rallying cry for believers to be engaged in dramatic spiritual warfare on every front. There are times, instead of resisting, you just need to turn and run. Joseph is a perfect example of that when he ran from Potiphar's wife. I'm out of here. But I want us to take the moment and say this. We need to stop giving the devil too much credit. Because what James is telling us here is that the devil's coming at me with temptations, and I resist him. What does it say? He will flee. I wore this shirt as a kid. I can't believe my parents let me wear it. It was a shirt with a little boy on it and said, the devil made me do it. Boy, but we sure live life that way. Many believers have that think. We, we give, the, we give the, uh, the attribute that belongs only to God, to the devil, omnipresence. It always bugs me when I hear someone say, the evil one's working hard today here on campus or wherever. And I'm like, so if you're saying that, that means he's not working hard to the person who's saying it in Europe. He's not omnipresent. He's not God. So what's our big enemy that causes us to sin? It's you. It's me. My biggest enemy is Tim McPhillips. It's my flesh. And this is where James is telling us this is why we need to submit, because I am the enemy on my own. Resist the devil, and he will flee. So this is that first book in submission to God and resistance to the devil. Now let's turn our attention to what resist, submission and resistance look like. This is verses 8 and 9. And again, I've already read that verse, and it's one most of you have memorized. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. It's not a beautiful promise. It's not draw near to God and, well, I think I can help you, Tim. No, there is a reciprocation. If you remember Elijah, what was one of the things he did in mocking the Baal, uh, the Baal prophets on Mark Carmel, when, they, when Baal wasn't responding? He must be sleeping. He must be in the restroom. This is a promise we have that as we draw nigh to God, he will draw near to you. It's such a beautiful promise. And unlike the last commands that we looked at that was contrasting of submission and resistance, this is a call that James is giving of running towards God, not running from. This is a running towards command running towards God. And he promises here that God will reciprocate that running to you.
What does that look like? I'm going to draw close to God right now. It's a mental thing. I just got to think about God more. I, I got to stop thinking about my beautiful wife and my children. I got to stop thinking about the job. Dr. Davis sends me an email. Sorry, I can't think about that. I got to think about God. It's not just a mental or emotional activity. Rather, it's a practical response to God. And James gives this throughout his book. James has already shown us how do you draw near to God? James tells us, control your tongue and you'll draw near to God. Care for the poor and you'll draw near to God. Grow in wisdom and peace and commune with him in prayer. This drawing near to God is doing, not just sit there sitting in your seat or on your couch thinking, I'm drawing near to God. It's doing, it's the practical implications of following God. The more we seek to live according to God's wisdom, the closer we will grow to his purity and holiness. Listen, drawing near to God is a call to holiness that James is giving to us today. It is a call to live holy and pure lives. If God is going to give grace to the humble, he's also going to give us the strength to be near him and to live in humility. This is a call to holiness. And we all know the great picture of Isaiah 6, when Isaiah got the beautiful and incredible glimpse of the throne room of God. We are called to live a life of holiness. What is important to God? The creatures in his throne room were not proclaiming love, love, love. They weren't proclaiming truth, truth, truth. And those are beautiful attributes of God. No, what were they proclaiming? Holy, holy, holy. We are called to live holy and separate lives for God. Don't make the mistake of assuming that in order to have Christian liberty, it means I cannot pursue holiness. God demands holiness of his children. He expects holiness. But he also understands we live in a broken world and pursuing holiness is not natural. It does not come easy. And we get these beautiful, this beautiful picture of what friendship with him looks like and what he gives us, the grace and strength to pursue that holiness. In the second part of verse 8, we see we, now James defines or gives us a picture of what drawing near to God looks like. Look what he says. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, this is, now we start to get into what does this drawing nigh look like? It's a call to repentance here. James uses this Old Testament imagery of ritual cleansing and purifying in the temple. But what James does here, he transposes these terms and brings them into a moral context. This isn't just going to wash your hands. This is not a COVID statement. This is one of recognizing sin in your life and dealing with it. This is a call to repentance, to turn from your wicked ways. Drawing near to God is recognizing sin in your life. It's recognizing the wickedness that overcomes us all the time that we give into. Let's be honest. There are days I am repenting before my feet touch the floor by the side of my bed. 
when I don't want to respond to that alarm clock, when I want to choose the sin of laziness, when I, don't want, to, when I want to be selfish and not have my little five-year-old come five times in the night and says, Daddy, help me with the blankets, they fell off. I think she kicks them off. So she has a reason to come to me. Or, Daddy, come to me, I have to go potty, and then realize she should have told me five minutes sooner. <laughs> but yet, as my wife shared, shared the other night in church, having our little ones has really showed us how selfish we really are. There are days I don't want to be a dad. There are days I don't want to be a husband. I want to be Tim, live for Tim, and be selfish. And what James says here, to draw near to God, is to recognize that sin that we battle with and repent. But he just doesn't stop with repentance. Look at verse 9. He goes on and says, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. And I'll be honest, when I first read these verses years ago, I'm like, what in the world? How do we go from drawing near to God? Yay, that's fun, let's do it, to mourn and weep and grieve. This is not talking about living a life of, oh, I can never please God. Oh, I've blown it. God is done with me. We know that's not true. Read Romans 8. It's not talking about beating yourself up. And I have met many believers who have done that, and they live a life of just monastic tendencies of just, oh, they won't laugh at anything. I remember guys in the dorm, to be serious about training for God's word means you cannot have fun in college. And if you did have fun, you weren't serious about the training. But what we see here is, James does say, as we repent, there ought to be an attitude of grieving about our sin. There ought to be an action of sorrow, like, wow, I've blown it. I've hurt my friend, God. Just like I do with my marital relationship, I hurt my wife. That grieves me because of our friendship. And it ought to grieve us when we hurt our God, our Creator. There ought to be sorrow. And sometimes we take a flippant view of our sin and the sin of others. Sins become a joke. And on a bigger scale, the LGBTQ, there ought to be a sorrow on our part. Yes, there is agenda. Yes, there is a political component to it. But there ought to be sorrowing when we see what sin is doing, destructing and mutilating bodies. And that's why the suicide rate amongst that community is so high. And we crack jokes about those people living in that sin. This is my soapbox today for this moment after spending 15 years in California. It is not the land of fruits and nuts. It is a pagan society that needs Christ. It is a pagan society that needs the gospel. And I urge every one of you, go west. There are, there are men and women serving out there in incredible ways amongst the land of the fruits and nuts. Don't be blinded by what color the state is, whether it's blue or red. That secular worldview is in your state too. But we ought to be grieved about our sin. The, I use this poor illustration. I hate 
spiders. I hate them. I hate them. <laughs> so much so, if I find one in the house, I'll call my wife to come deal with it. <laughs> I have no shame in that. And the Lord sends me to the desert of California where there's black widows everywhere. And I know one of them is going to get me at any moment. But growing up in the dairy farms of Michigan, working with my older brother, Gerald, he would go in the morning, 4 a.m., to milk cows, and he would get me out of bed, and I would love to go with him. I was in elementary. And I would just roam the barns, low lighting, and inevitably, every time, I'd be walking through, and I'd walk through a spider web. What do, what do you think I did? I did this little dance, right? Because you know the spider is on you, and I just want it off of me. Oh, that we would view sin the same way in our lives. Get it off of me. God, I don't want it. If we would have this attitude of repentance, of remove this wickedness from me, remove my selfishness, remove my pride, I don't want it. And yet, how many times do we look back at our sin and it's like, boy, those were the good old days. We make light of it. I'll never forget, I say this because you're the college students, who many of you have ministry opportunities on, on the weekends. As a teen here at my church when I was in high school in Watertown, we did a bowling activity right up here at the Watertown 18. And I remember two college students, there was... There was heavy metal music playing, and they were enjoying it, and they were talking about their good old days pre-salvation. That had an impact on me. I was like, oh, I guess it's okay to do that. Shun everything about your pre-Christian life. There's nothing for you back there. Hate it. Despise it. Turn from it. We ought to have a sober view of sin in our lives and in the lives around us and in the world. It is not something we joke about. It is not something we make light of. And this brings us to our other bookend now at the end of verse 10. This is where the friendship pays off. What James does here in verse 10 is he restates the call to humility that you see in verse 7. In verse 10, what he says here. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Again, it's the same idea of submission. There is a humility. There is a bringing yourself down low. Bringing yourself down. Subjecting yourself to God. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And again, the difference with the first bookend. The first bookend was submit and resist. This one, we have one responsibility in this verse. Humble yourselves. And the last part of it is what God does. And it says, he shall lift you up. What does that mean? Physically pick me up? To lift up, it means to exalt, to make great, to elevate. There's a royalty feel to this statement. It's to be placed in a place of royalty. What? This is the almighty God, my creator, my savior. And he's putting me in a place, lifting me up. People who are humble do not seek their own rights, but allow God to encourage them. Allow God to lift them up as he sees fit. Again, this is not a statement, humble, humble, humble yourselves before the Lord and life is good. That's not what this is. 
some of the most some of the people who have great humility that I've known in my life have had anything but an easy life. But I can see in their testimony God is lifting them up. Repentance is needed to gain this true exaltation. It doesn't come from the world, but it comes from God. And I want to encourage you when we think about humility, do not mistake humility for passivity. It doesn't mean you're a whipping boy. It doesn't mean you just lay down and let everyone make fun of you and kick you around. But no, we need to understand humility that it's receptivity. That I'm going to have the receptivity to the truth that's put in front of me by God. And I'm going to respond with humble heart. I'm not going to resist. Humility is simply accepting truth, learning from every situation, growing in simplicity, growing in wisdom. Look what you get in friendship with God. He will exalt you. He will elevate you. There's no better friendship in all the world that you can pursue. My wife is my best friend. But our friendship is not like this. My friendship with God is the one I pursue. I draw near to him. I draw near to his truth. I learn to love his truth. And I respond when I fail. One of the most beautiful passages that coincided this is in Psalm. What does a righteous man do when he falls? He gets back up. I can't tell you how many times we have quoted that in our parenting to our children. Because it's truth. But it's truth that points to a believer. A righteous man. It is the righteous man who gets up. It's the fool who stays down and lays in his calamity and doesn't care. Get up. Pursue after God. Draw near to God. And guess what? You're going to fall flat on your face again. Get up. Draw near to God. You fall down. Draw near to God. And there's going to be days you feel like you spend more time on the ground than on your feet. Pursue after God. Draw near to Him. These are the verses that if I had life verses, these are it. And I am still pursuing these verses. I go back to our original question that I asked. Do you have friendship with God? Can your roommate, your friends, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your fiancé, your spouse, look at you in your life and say, yes, they are living a life in friendship with God? Let's pray. Our God, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you in your long-suffering kindness and patience towards your children. These passages come across as commands, but they don't feel like just harsh commands, but an opportunity to grow in friendship with you. I praise you that you just that you want a relationship with us, that you want reciprocation. Lord, I pray today that as we leave here, we would be a campus that is identified by our friendship with you. And there are those in here who are not your friend. May they see that you are opposing them. May they feel the pressure of battle against you. And may they turn to you in humility and submission and become your friend through salvation. In your son's name I pray. Amen.